tree was all the same I was under the sky, no new horizons Maybe there is no one else to Listener and welcome back to the Campbell's Footballs podcast. I'm joined for this episode by an up-and-coming journalist from the world of the BBC, Jordan Elgott. Jordan, a warm welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you on during these times. How are you coping? Yeah, not bad. I'm back at my family home in Manchester. Um, I'm usually based in Edinburgh and will be moving to Glasgow hopefully in the next few weeks. But um, yeah, it's been nice. It's been a bit of a challenge getting used to family life again. But um, I've played far too much PlayStation to really notice where I am. So yeah, all good. That was what I was going to actually ask you. How have you been kind of keeping things going? Has it been lots of FIFA or playing with yeah. games with your friends on, on that sort of thing? On loads of other things? Yeah, I'm, I'm a really sociable person usually, so the transition from actually going out and seeing people to, uh, I guess, my main social source has been PlayStation, you know, I've got about 20 friends on there every night, um, we play Call of Duty Warzone, FIFA, but I do have other productive hobbies, I've been doing a bit of reading and that sort of thing, um, but yeah, I, I say as soon as I finish work, straight on the PlayStation most of the time. Yeah, obviously. It's great to have you on the show. It's great to actually delve into the start of your career because obviously you're just starting out as a life as a as a football journalist. So I'm really pleased to have you on the podcast. Uh, my first question to you is: What made you want to go into the world of journalism at the start? Well, I think most people um, don't necessarily grow up wanting to be a journalist. It's more they have an interest in a certain field. My, for example, sports, and I absolutely loved football. Um, and I want, like any kid, really, who loved football, want to be a footballer when you're six or seven years old. Um, and I was always that kid in the playground who just knew everything about football, any score, any shirt number. I always knew it. I was obsessed with it. And not just football as well, stuff like WWE. I was really obsessive over things like that. Mm. Um I played football as a kid, um, unfortunately, uh, put on a bit of weight as I was about 12 or 13. I used to be quite a good footballer, and I thought that was more the reason why I got worse rather than a symptom of an under underlying problem, um, which we later found out was an autoimmune condition um, mm. called AS. Oh. So that basically caused me a lot of pain throughout my teenage years and stopped me playing sport. Um, it's where the bones of the spine fused together over time. Thankfully, I'm on medication now and was diagnosed with it. But throughout that period, my, my love for football didn't change. I just wasn't really able to play it. And I think my first ever glimpse or sort of thought of being a football journalist, I spoke to my dad and I, I realised that people get paid to go and watch football matches, thought that sounds great. And I think my dad just went, it's just a throwaway comment, he said, yeah, it's not a very well paid industry, which he wasn't wrong, um, but at, at the time it put me off. I went to a, a very good school surrounded by very promising um, students who went have already gone on to achieve fantastic things. and. I think at that time you're not necessarily thinking too hard about what you want to do in terms of what you love doing but mm. you, you go into school every day to get an education to go and get a good job and it was sort of put to the back of my mind for quite a while um, the idea of being a journalist mm -hmm. uh, so I went to university I did politics at university because I was just interested in that and um, it was what I was best at but I had no idea what I wanted to do even while I was at university my plan was always to um, take a break after I graduated, do six months worth of work experience and see whichever area of work I like the most, just go into that. And it's really funny actually, the way that I wrote my first article, I was watching England in the European Championships and we played quite well, first game, 
I think it was the first game anyway. Yeah, it was actually. And we were against Russia and we won a up and in the last minute we gave away a silly corner. Russia equalised and I was so angry. I was absolutely furious and I thought, I just need to vent about this. You know, Twitter at the time still wasn't the same level of characters that it is now. Um, I didn't think I could get it all off my chest on that. So I set up a WordPress site and did a player ratings, which I'm sure if you went and looked at it, would be absolutely terrible. But instantly I got the, uh, I just got the bug for it. I really enjoyed doing it. And at that point, having had no idea what I actually wanted to do, the idea of being a sports journalist came back into my mind. Good stuff. That's, that's when I first realised, really. Good. Um, with any weight behind it, that, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, who were your inspirations, uh, footballing heroes, playing-wise, or or journalists that you've read on on websites or in the papers? Who were your sort of idols? Um, well, I've grown up with someone who gets a lot of stick is Martin Tyler, um, but I've grown up listening to him commentate, and that is my end goal: being a commentator. I think he's absolutely brilliant. I don't think he yes. deserves the stick that he gets, and I think because he gets criticised by sort of all all sections of football fandom. But he's probably doing a decent job. Um, he's not biased, I don't think. So uh, Martin Tyler is probably my commentary idol. Uh, in terms of actual footballing heroes, I'm, I'm a Manchester City fan. Ooh. So growing up, I'm a United up, fan. <laughs> really, we should have discussed that beforehand. Um, but growing up, as I'm sure you'll know, I didn't actually have that many idols in to look up to in the Man City team. Yeah, so sort of the early noughties, and we were short of high quality players. The only high sort of well-known players that we got were the ones who came to us at the end of their career like Stephen McManaman Peter Schmeichel all those sorts of players so I, I loved the Arsenal Invincibles team Thierry Henry and Robert Perez absolutely loved watching them play yeah. and um, Sean Wright Phillips was the one sort of city love that I actually had and really connected with I, I named my goldfish Shorty Wright once so he was uh, he was probably my main footballing inspiration yeah. in terms of on the pitch yeah Wright Phillips was a really good player I remember that city team sort of growing up obviously to, to where they have gone now they, they've kind of exponentially just got better and better and Wright Phillips was a, a phenomenal player but I go back to players like Sean Goater and Paul Dickov and, and people like that and Paolo Wanshop and, and you know these are these are names that nobody really talks about now because this City team have just gone from strength to strength that's the thing I, I recently did a podcast about Man City where we did a um, we did a draft so there was four of us and we all went one by one picking a player and we voted on who had the best team at the end based on the last 20 years of Manchester City and I absolutely stormed it because everyone got a bit nostalgic and I, I just picked all the most recent players because yeah. the jump in quality yeah. you know, there were some quality players back then someone else someone had Ali Benabia who was brilliant but the jump in quality like Sean Wright Phillips wouldn't get anywhere near this current Man City team even at his peak in my opinion mm. um, it, it, it's been a crazy crazy time to support City and I, I got into it at just about the right time really um, my first season ticket we scored 10 goals at home all season so but City fans have had a lot more suffering than that over the past 30 years and then after that we were taken over by Tatsin Shinawatra had Sven Joran Eriksson and then a year later taken over by Sheikh Mansour and we've won everything there is to win domestically I'm going to ask you for your Manchester City best 11 a little bit later on but what does Manchester City as a club mean to you Jordan? It used to mean a lot more than it currently does I have to say um, I 
think when you're growing up younger, it means a lot more. You're surrounded in school by Manchester United fans, and although the joke is that Manchester United fans don't often come from Manchester, there are still a lot of them in Manchester, um, and a lot of the time in school we were a minority the city fans so i used to get a lot more caught up on bragging rights um i remember you know we just i was watching early today actually man city three manchester united four when michael owen scored in the 95th minute and i had to turn it off before owen scored because the pain of that goal i don't think a goal has ever caused me so much pain so back then it, it would really would ruin my weekend my week um if city lost but I think as spoiled as it sounds, the more you win, the less it matters to you. Mm-hmm. You know, nowadays, especially with the way that the club are run, although we see with the current court of arbitration of the sport rule and whether they're actually run that well, um, I always feel like City are going in the right direction. There's always a bigger mm-hmm. picture with it, unlike Manchester United potentially with a lot of criticism over Ed Woodward and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but the odd loss here and there doesn't mean as much to me. Um, working for the BBC, I've got to make sure that I'm not biased. And I think I have actually made great strides to um, to combat my interest in City. It helps that a lot of the time I work weekends, so I don't get to see the games. And uh, I've been a bit more disconnected from it recently because I've been, I've been in Scotland. I've not had a chance to go yeah. to many City games. But I still watch all the games that I can. And... They, they were sort of my first football and glove and uh, as I said I got lucky but I think it adds to my story in my own head of mm-hmm. how far City have come from when I started supporting them to where they are now and I'm, I'm very proud of them as a, as a footballing team the way that they play all the different questions over the ownership etc etc et yeah what was your what's your first memory of following Man City um well, actually, my, my dad's a Leeds United fan, so okay. many people, but he's originally from Leeds, I'm originally from Manchester, and my family on my mum's side have City fans, and my best friends um, in school were Manchester City fans. And I got lucky again in supporting City, because we were losing a lot of the matches at the time, but the first matches that I went to, we always seemed to win. So my first game was actually New Year's Day on two, in 2005, we beat Sunderland 2-1. Sean Wright Phillips scored an absolute screamer. Um, and yeah, I think that was actually what hooked me on them because I did go to a couple of Leeds games, but I never really had that same connection with them as, as I did with City, probably because I grew up a lot closer to, to City Stadium than Leeds and my best friend supported them. So that game was probably my earliest memory. I went to a few games, um, scored... Robbie Fowler scored a hat-trick in a 3-1 win over Scunthorpe in the Cup, which at the time was a decent win, yeah. although now it would be a formality. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, I think probably the, the last game before everything changed that I went to was when City scored three on, I think it was New Year's Day 2006 under Stuart Pearce. It was the last three goals we scored at home all season. We didn't score a goal at home all season after that uh, in a 3-0 win over Fulham. So yeah, those were my earliest memories, but the greatest memories have come a lot later. And I, I was there that day when Aguero scored, and I can safely say nothing in my life will ever, ever eclipse that moment. Well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come on to that point because as a United fan, it was hell for me seeing that winning goal. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna be very objective here when I ask this. That game, talk me through your emotions because Zabaleta scores the opening goal and then Queen's Park Rangers obviously they're fighting to stay alive in the league at that point of the season the equaliser, I think it was Bobby Zamora that equalised or was it Julian Lesko made the mistake didn't they and Zamora scored it's Gibral Cissé that equalised Gibral Cissé, sorry, I beg your pardon yeah, Um, it was a strange day because 
we, I think looking back at that season, we were down and out really with six games to go, eight points behind. Well, United, we were eight, exactly, United were eight points ahead, and and remember, yeah. United, the game for me that changes the season is United four two up against Everton and only get a point. That for me is yeah. where they allow City back in, and then City obviously won the Manchester Derby that company header. Um, at, Ultra, at, at the City of Manchester Stadium, I beg your pardon, which is where it was called then before it was called the Etihad. And that really is where the season definitely changed. Yeah, and it, it, it wasn't the United team that you see now. It was the United team managed by Sir Alex Ferguson. So they had that ruthless streak still. He still feared them. Um, so to think, with, with six games to go, eight points behind, in my mind it was totally done. I remember I went to a, a game against West Brom and I think beat them 4-0 and just didn't really mean much. I think that was actually the day that United lost to Wigan. I think Sean Maloney scored, um, scored a scream at that. Wouldn't surprise that me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the QPR game was a bit strange that we were even in that situation because we'd done all the hard work. We'd beaten United at the City of Manchester Stadium. We'd gone to Newcastle, who were in superb form at the time with Pat PC, say, Denver Bar, and we'd beaten them 2-0, two Yaya Torre goals. And it, it looked like a bit of a formality. But as you say, QPR were fighting for their lives. And even in that team, they had Sean Wright Phillips, who we've already mentioned, and Neda Manua. Um, so conflicting interest for them that day Zabaleta scores as you say but Yaya Torre goes off injured and at half time it, it feels like you know we're just going to go on to win it and then Lescott makes a mistake Cissé scores and then Jamie Mackey pops up I think around the 65th minute maybe slightly later um, and heads in and I was just absolutely devastated mm-hmm. absolutely devastated because not only do you have your team who haven't won a league title for 44 years the consequence of not winning it was that your biggest rivals all your friends in school are going to be the winners um, so it was devastating at the time and I went to the games with my friend Zach obviously my dad doesn't support City so that we went together we were only I was 15, 16 at the time just about to do my GCSEs and I think I actually had a GCSE on that Monday and I said to Zach around the 90th minute I said do you want to stay to give the players a clap for the end of the season or should we just go on the final whistle and he said yeah we should we should stay um, and 91st minute Eddie Dzeko scores from a from a corner and I didn't celebrate I don't think I actually moved <coughs> excuse me um, because in my mind it was gone I'd resigned mm-hmm. myself to mm-hmm. the fact that typical City was still a thing mm-hmm. we're going to mess it up again and it was it was over even though we'd equalised and then it's a bit of a blur. I was sat probably diagonal from where Aguero goes through, um, and I was back at the second tier, and it felt like I was on the pitch as he ran through. It, it, it was like an out-of-body experience, yeah. and ran through, scored. Obviously, everybody goes absolutely crazy. Um, never experienced a moment like it in my life. Just for the, the change in mood from absolute mm. devastation to yeah. the best feeling I've ever felt you can only get in football you yeah. can't get that anywhere else and that's why I'll always say yeah. you know if I get married have kids nothing will beat that moment yeah. just because of the, the contrast in emotion
education. And uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever been so happy to go into school for an exam. Or <laughs> Absolutely. It was just a crazy game because we haven't even talked about the Joey Barton red card, which was which was oh. quite controversial at the time. And you know, he was trying to apparently he was trying to take out quite a few City players at the time to to make sure that they lost a man as well. Failed obviously in that objective. But you mentioned a very good point about that Jekyll goal because everybody talks about the Aguero moment but if Dzeko doesn't score that Aguero moment doesn't happen that's a key moment yeah. in the whole story yeah and a lot of City fans love Dzeko as a result because he's a bit of a forgotten man he's done really well at Roma since leaving he's a brilliant he player. got a lot of stick while playing for City because he, he looks like a, a bit of a lump you know I think his mm -hmm. nickname when he first started in I think he played in the Czech Republic and he was called the lamppost just because of his lankiness and uh you know, he, he can look a bit like that, but he was he was brilliant for us and scored some crucial goals. And that one, you know, no more crucial than that one. It was absolutely massive. Um, and yeah, Joey Barton is another City player on the day, um, as you say. I mean, that was crazy. It was borderline assault what he was doing, just yeah. going around kicking everybody. But yeah. yeah, a crazy, crazy day and one that I'll never ever forget. And of course, that in that game as well is very famous for Mario Balotelli's only assist in the Premier League, as mentioned by Duncan Alexander, who's been a previous guest of the show. Quite an extraordinary statistic. Yeah, it is. And, uh, you know, I think he only passed it because he was losing his footing, but that's just Mario. We're, we're the only club that he's ever connected with, I think, because we're, as a fan base, as mad as he is, really. Um, he said he loves us, we love him. Would I have him back? Maybe. I'd probably regret it, but, um, yeah, he's only assist. But if you're going to get one, that's the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and also, very vividly watching that game, all I remember is Joe Hart's massive arms-out celebration and Roberto Mancini running on the pitch. I mean, what does Mancini mean to you as a manager? Obviously, he, he was the man who not only brought the first league title in 44 years, he was the man who brought the first trophy we won in 35 years with the FA Cup in 2011. Um, and when he took over from Mark Hughes, there was a bit of scepticism over whether he was the right man for the job. And, um, I mean, history is clearly showing that he was at the time. He, he did a fantastic job for us. Um, when he left, City fans actually paid £6,000 to take out an advert in Gazzetta dello Sport, the Italian um, sports magazine, to say thank you Mancini, thank you Roberto. It was yeah. gutting when he left. There was a bit of controversy because uh, we still had the cup final against Wigan to play, which we lost 1-0 with Ben Watson header. And I think everyone knew that he was going before then, that the club had planned this new holistic approach in inverted commas and we're going to bring in Manuel Pellegrini. And he, he was loved, Mancini. I think he had to go because I think he started to clash with the dressing room and the board mm -hmm. just wasn't quite right. But he will always be the person who changed our fortunes. You yeah. know, forget about the money from Sheikh Mansour. The manager does get the credit and he, he was there to oversee it all. Yeah, Pellegrini obviously comes in and wins the Premier League and then Guardiola comes in and just takes it to another level, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean... Uh, he is a genius. I find it hard, as, funnily enough, I find it harder to connect with him as a person than I did with Mancini. Obviously, I don't know the guys, but uh, Mancini was a lot more lovable than Pep is. He's, he's got his own way and his, his press conferences don't exactly warm you to him. But in terms of footballing uh, knowledge, the guy is just an absolute genius. It does round me a bit when, when he gets called a fraud, even yeah. though he shouldn't. He, he's fantastic and... The way that he... Okay, he spent a lot of money. He has spent a lot of money. But the, the team was similar to when Ferguson left United 
and David Moyes came in. City had four fullbacks at the time when Guardiola came in, all of them over the age of 30. Mm-hmm. So, of course, you know, to, to play in his system, you need to, you know, have the legs to get up and down as a fullback. And Zabaleta, Sanya, Clichy, and Kolarov certainly didn't. So, he was always going to have to spend yeah. a lot of money. Now, one criticism is that he's not brought any youth players through, which I think is people will say it's his, his European failures, which is his main mm-hmm. failure. I don't believe that to be the case. I think Champions League is a bit of a lottery. My mm-hmm. biggest disappointment with him is that City are now viewed as a club where youngsters don't have a path to come through to the first team. And as you've seen with Jadon Sancho, <clears throat> uh, Rabi Matondo, who's gone to Schalke, and um, I think had, Phil, had Foden. Phil Foden not been a big Man City fan, he wouldn't be there at the moment. Yeah, and Phil so, Foden, for me, has got a, got a huge career ahead of him if he can get a couple of first team starts but he's been he's, he's got a lot of people ahead of him in the queue hasn't he he's got people like David Silva who's just a club legend isn't he yeah I mean he's in my opinion he's the greatest footballer to ever play for City David Silva but he's, he's coming to the end of his time at City now I think he's sat, he'll play until the end of the mm-hmm. season and then he'll, he'll move on but it's just whether City will sign a replacement and yeah. you know Foden's clearly at the level where he should be playing Premier League football now so I think that'll be a big yeah test of whether Guardiola's willing to trust him is whether City buy another central midfielder. Does Manuel Pellegrini not get the credit he deserves in this story? Because, as I said, Guardiola has exponentially improved Manchester City and obviously Mancini got them on the road to winning trophies. But does Pellegrini get lost in this story? Because he did a very decent job at Man City. Yeah, to an extent. Uh, I'm indifferent towards Pellegrini because his first season was very good. Although Liverpool, um, I think, threw it away. Mm -hmm. Again, City came from behind to win the title. Um, City played fantastic football last season. I think scored over 100 goals and um, won the... It must have been the Capital One Cup that year um, in in his first season. And that's that's no mean feat to to do a double in your first year. So he was very good at that point, but... Second year was typical City didn't really strengthen enough and finished second place and just finished with a bit of a whimper. Mm-hmm. And then what I think has diminished his reputation is the shambles of a season that he had in his final year. It was the year that Leicester won the league. Yeah. And as much as that's a fantastic fairy tale story, I think the league was there for the taking that year. Spurs finished second, but any decent title-winning side would have walked it that year, I think. Did Spurs, um, did Spurs finish second? I thought Arsenal finished second. <laughs> I, th- I think Spurs finished second. Mm, they might have done actually, but Spurs were the main. Because it was it not the story that time. Spurs finished third in a two-horse race or something. I thought. Yeah, I heard that yeah, that, 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 that does ring a bell. But Spurs were the main contenders. Yes, that's right. That's right. Because they because they drew against the Chelsea to to hand exactly. last for the title. Exactly. Sorry, sorry. Go on. Um, City finished fourth that season on goal difference and nearly missed out on a Champions League place. That's right. Um, it, it was just an absolutely horrendous season. Bizarrely started off with five wins in a row and no goals conceded. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that's what really has diminished Pellegrini's reputation. And also, mm-hmm. he's either side of two fantastic managers, Mancini, who will be forever in the club's heart, yeah. and Pep Guardiola, who I believe Pellegrini was brought in as a stopgap for, um, mm-hmm. who has transform the team into yeah. sort of an absolute super team. How has happened to Man City this season? Have they just not been able to match Liverpool because of their exploits last season? Or have Liverpool just been far too good? Well, Liverpool are phenomenal and uh, have been the best team in the league this season, obviously by some distance. I think the difference has been is that our hunger to win it three times in a row isn't as large as their hunger to win their first Premier League 
you know, in a, in a very, very long yeah, time. Yeah, to years. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, so we won our last 14 games last season. Had we dropped a single point, we wouldn't have won the league. That is, you know, mentally and physically exhausting for Absolutely. And once you once you win it, and I remember that game against Brighton last day of the season, we actually went a goal behind and managed to equalise within about 60 seconds. Um, that was a big relief, and it felt like all the pressure was off. So we sort of took a bit of a break, I think, and um, I think that's what's, what's cost us, really. Yeah. Liverpool's mentality has been, yes, we've won the Champions League, but our fans won the Premier League, and... Um, you know, they've been superb. They've been absolutely superb. City have had a lot of bad luck with injuries, though. Mm-hmm. Leroy Sane. That's a big one. The whole season, pretty much. I'm Eric Laporte. Can't seem to stay, stay fit at the moment. I think has missed at least 75% of the season. Um, and the options beyond that, I know City have fantastic squad depth and the clubs would kill for yeah. it. But our centre-half situation is an absolute... Well, that was what. It, well, that was what I was going to say. I don't think they've ever fully replaced Vincent Company, who, as a Manchester United fan, I'm going to say this, is one of the best ever players to play for Man City. Yeah, and I think there's recency bias when people think of Van Dijk at the moment um, because you can see him every week and he looks imperious. But company was that for us yes. for about six years. Whenever he was there, he had his injury problems. Um, but we, yeah, we did replace him. We spent sixty million on a backup fullback who's hardly played in Chao Cancelo. Um, Rodri's not really hit the ground running. He doesn't look like a bad player, but certainly not a £60 million player yet. So, yeah, things have just gone wrong for us this season. Um, but, as I say, I don't get too caught up on it because I know that the club are going in the right direction and yeah. there will be a plan to make sure, and it won't just be throwing money at it, it'll yeah. be making sure that the right players are brought in and the right manager when Guardiola leaves maybe in a season to get things back on track. Yeah, I'm going to ask you for your best Man City eleven, as I mentioned in a little while, but I want to move on a little bit more to talk about your own journey because you're currently working for the BBC. How did that come about? So it was actually my final year of, of university. So as I say, I, I wrote my first article about that England um, draw against Russia. And I, once I got the book, I started writing for a Manchester City fan site on Twitter. Um, and that grew whilst I was there over about a year from 40,000 followers, which was, at the time was uh, still a massive platform for me to write when I was doing player ratings for every game. Um, you know, at university, I, I was very much there for the social life, but my sort of... Um, motivations changed once I started writing I, I got my head screwed on and I knew that's what I wanted to do so I was giving up time to do that and that grew from 40,000 followers to about 150,000 followers by the time that I left um, and in, I knew I wanted to be a journalist but in journalism there are very few graduate trainee schemes mm. one is the Daily Mail which I applied for and didn't get to the first stage and um, and the other was the BBC. And for some reason, I had a feeling about BBC that I might go far, even though I didn't really have the experience that I thought was required. As it happens, you don't actually need much experience. They're, they're a very good organisation to work for, and they don't discriminate based on that. But mm-hmm. I didn't think I had much of a chance on paper, but I just had a bit of a feeling about it. So I go through all these stages and eventually get to the assessment centre, where it was myself and um, I think there were five 
five women uh, there as well. Not just for sport, it was for the wide trainee scheme, and they were all absolutely brilliant. I remember speaking to them in the waiting area, and just I was like, "How am I here with them? I just don't have a chance." And as it happens, I was right to an extent because I didn't get onto the BBC tra- trainee scheme that year. Um, it went to someone called Miriam Walker Khan on the sports, and she, she's been absolutely brilliant for them, um, and fully deserved to get on ahead of me. Yeah. But my interviewer on the day was a guy called Adrian Hobart, who. I think it's just left the BBC, but he was their assistant editor of World Service Sports. And he sent me a direct, direct message after, I think knowing that I wasn't going to get it, saying, um, you really impressed me today, mate. Um, let me know if, regardless of what happens today, I'll get you in for some work experience. Which was very nice of him. I think he had a sort of a talent spotting role for them as well. Right. Um and it, it, it meant a lot to me. So when I got the, the email saying that I was unsuccessful in getting onto the scheme, I immediately messaged him. Um, he brought me in for work experience for a day and set up a meeting with their talent, sort of uh, whoever's in charge of bringing in new people to the company, the recruiter. Yeah. And he was setting up this freelance talent pool and went to an open day for that. And I met with a scheduler for five live sports called Francesca and she would send out emails based on who wanted to freelance when they needed someone on their social mm. media team and at, in the meantime of all this I was doing an NCTJ qualification doing shorthand that sort of stuff to sort of boost my chances of breaking into the industry mm. at a journalism school in Manchester called News Associates so that was really good I wasn't just sitting around waiting I was trying to get an extra diploma and um when Francesca would send the email around to see who was available to freelance, I never said no to anything. I just said, yes, yeah. I was the quickest. I made sure every time that email came, didn't matter what I had planned, what I was doing, I would just say yes. Mm-hmm. So it soon became that the group email group of eight people that she was emailing for freelance shifts just became a quick email to me, see whether I could do it. And I was there to sort of go to freelancer on Five Life Sports social media, doing broadcast assistant shifts. And then from that, um, I actually got some shifts working on Test Match Special, the BBC's cricket programme. And I, I was working overnight whilst the team were in New Zealand as the Salford producer, which yeah. was you know, I was twenty two years old. To have that on my C V just stood me in such good stead. Super. Um, to to apply once again for the scheme when it came around um, and as I said I just said yes to absolutely everything that came my way um, and had a whole load of shifts I got to the assessment centre again when, it, when I reapplied and not in a big headed way but my CV that there can't have been many people who had a CV like mine yeah. because of how much I'd taken on in that year absolutely um, and yeah, so I got on, but uh, funnily enough, at the assessment centre, I was actually expected to work in Manchester. That's where the main BBC Sport offices are, that's where I'm from. It just made sense. But I get to the assessment centre and they say, by the way, all of our sports placements are in Scotland this year. <laughs> Which, you know, no discrimination to Scotland. I, I fell in love with the place, but um, it was a big shock to me. Yeah. I did not see that coming. And when I got offered the job, um, the Bernadette, who was in charge of the scheme at the time, she rang me up and said, congratulations, you've got the scheme. Your life will be based in Aberdeen or Edinburgh. Now, Aberdeen, I'm sure, is lovely, but it's quite far away from home. Yes. And... Um, Edinburgh was my preferred option, so I said to Bernadette, "Can you can I wait to find out which one I, I yeah. have to go and stay in before I find out?" And she said, "No." So I had to take a leap of faith. I ended up getting Edinburgh, and yeah, I started that in October 2018. Finished Brilliant. a 
11 months later really and that's that's how I got into the BBC yeah fantastic what an incredible uh, story that is when you, I'm interested about the Test Smash special because I, I, I do like a little bit of cricket from time to time did you have any interactions with Aggers or Jeffrey Boycott at all yeah, that was that was my job really. So I I um I basically put together highlights in the studio for the intervals, and I would put together the podcast at the end of each. Well, I'd call it an episode, but it's an absolute marathon of a <laughs> of a show. So um, at the end of that day, I put together the podcast, and my job was to speak to Agus and get him to record links into the podcast, that sort of thing. Which, yeah, as I say, it was amazing for me to be doing it at the time. I never thought that I would get the opportunity to do that. It's an institution, TMS. Yeah. It's, uh, people absolutely adore it. It gets millions of listeners. And I was producing that show on, on Radio 4 wow. Longwave and um, on 5 Live Sports Extra. That was absolute yeah. honour and looks fantastic on my CV. And Radio 5 Live just continues to grow, doesn't it? Because I, I love a lot of the, the programmes on that, from Monday Night Club with Mark Chapman to, you know... Load of things on on with plenty test match special. There's so much content on Five Live. It's just growing all the time, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it was a brilliant place to work. Everyone there is lovely, and um, Mike Carr, who's just left, was the uh, the editor of Five Live Sport. And I just remember learning so much. It was my first real workplace environment besides the summer jobs I had working in call centres, etc., etc. It was it was my first real taste of journalism and um, just the way in which he operated and tried to move stories on I learned a lot from, from him and there's some wonderful people that work there I think um, in terms of the next steps in my career I'd, I'd love to go back there in the next few years and, and work there Yeah, you mentioned there that you always said yes to a lot of things is that your advice to budding journalists just when you get an opportunity just say yes Absolutely. Um, I was actually thinking about this. Think I was, uh, I was wondering what you were going to ask me, and I was thinking, you know, what advice would I give to to people? Because fortunately for myself, a lot of things in my career already have gone right for me. I've yeah. not had to to graft when things have gone wrong. I've managed to get to where I wanted to be at a very early stage in my career, and I know that's not the case for a lot of people. So my advice is somewhat limited in that respect. But my, my biggest drive and probably the main reason why I got to where I am now is because of that year of just solid commitment to yeah. to getting to where I wanted to be. I've never worked so hard in my life. I was working nine till five pretty much in this journalism course, doing shorthand four hours a day and I went straight from there to do a five till midnight shift at Media City in Salford and I loved it. You know, I, I said yes to everything and I think that's why why I got to where I am and yeah, yeah I, I think back now into some of the shifts I said yesterday one day I was just um, relaxing at home after I'd been at the journalism school and I got a message saying someone's ill can you come in it was 7 o'clock and they asked me to do a social media shift on the Champions League semi-final Brilliant. so I thought to myself well all I'm going to do if I stay here is watch the Champions League semi-final and tweet about it yeah. so I may as well go in get paid for it Super. and um yeah, uh, build my reputation further. So, yeah. it, uh, sports journalism should be an industry in which you're in it because you love sport and you're in it because you love journalism. Yeah. So, anything that you get given the opportunity to do, unless you have a fantastic reason not to, there's no reason for turning it down because yeah. other, that, other things can wait. But that is the time to really yeah. put in graft. Yeah. That's why 
I'll put so much emphasis on it because it's got me to the position I'm currently in. Commitment and enthusiasm. I absolutely love it. Um, talk about your, your time in Scotland because obviously you're working from, well, obviously not at the moment, but you're, you're in Edinburgh. I mean, what, what does Edinburgh mean to you as a city? Because, you know, from a guy who's living in Manchester to move up to Edinburgh, that must have been quite a challenge for you. Yeah, it is. It is different. Um, I'd lived in Nottingham when I went to university, so I was used to living away from home. That wasn't too much of a problem. But um, it's a bit of a culture shock. Edinburgh's probably more like England than most places in Scotland. But I work a lot in Glasgow at Pacific here as well. And what I always say to people is, you think you're funny in England. You're not in Glasgow. You're just not. <laughs> it's, it's a totally different sense of humour, totally different way of speaking to people, and it requires adjustment, um, and you have to adapt. Edinburgh, I absolutely love as a city. Um, I didn't know many people to begin with, as would be the case in most cities. Yeah. A lot of people at work are a lot significantly older than me. I'm 24 years old, and I think sports journalism and journalism in general, to get... As I say, BBC is where people want to get to in their career and often it takes a long time to get there. So the people there don't tend to be as young as, as I am. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to make friends through that. I actually made a really, really useful and fantastic friend because it's my my mate who's a City fan's brother goes to the university there and uh, okay. we started meeting up to watch the City games. Yeah. So through that, I've met all of his friends. They became my best friends and... I go to work, they go to lectures, and then we all went out together. It was a great life, I have to say, I do miss it. Um, but that helped me adapt to Edinburgh really quickly. Um, but the whole thing, it's really difficult being an Englishman, following the Premier League for your whole life, and coming up to Scotland and instantly being thrown into situations where you should know more than you do. I'm not afraid to say that when I started out um, in October 2018, I did not know much about Scottish sport. And I was there at press conferences asking questions. Yeah. Um, I remember very early on, I was going to the rugby press conferences of the Scotland national team for the, I think it was Autumn Internationals. Mm -hmm. And I'm not even a massive rugby fan, never mind Scottish rugby. And the way it works at press conferences, the broadcast media asks the questions first and then the print journalists go. And I'm there at the front leading the questions, full of a room full of people who've been doing this for 30 years. Yeah. And I'm just there going, yeah, so uh, what's the mood like in the camp? Just yeah. asking the most generic questions. It was, it was difficult and you can't just instantly yeah. learn everything that, that's got on in the past 20 years just because you've moved to a new place it, it was really it was a really big challenge but as i say it's been a massive education for me i've learned so much up there yeah and as it happens i think i actually like the scottish rugby team more than i like the english <laughs> one because I, I know a lot of the players so yeah. it's, it's been great it has been great when you mentioned the scotland rugby team obviously i know that um tom english uh, for the bbc uh, does a lot of writing for scottish rugby and jamie lyle who's also been a guest of this podcast as well he's uh, chatted to me about scottish rugby along with rory hamilton who's obviously done a lot of it on bt sports so you've definitely got a good scottish connection group there of people to, to yeah, tag well, in i actually uh Whenever I go to a rugby press conference, I give Jamie a ring, Jamie Lyle a ring. I'm like, Jamie, tell me what I need to ask these guys. Because I'll have a list of questions, but Jamie knows his rugby so well. He does. He's, he's absolutely brilliant and he's doing really well commentating at the moment. Yeah. Well, not right now, but just before the lockdown. Absolutely. Now, obviously, as a freelance journalist, you get the opportunity to, to visit around a lot of Scottish grounds and a load of different sports. What's the most interesting experience you've had? Um... Well, at the beginning of this season, I was given the role at the time. We had to 
move things around because of staffing issues. But I was the Friday night reporter on the BBC Scotland channel for the championship game. And I'd go on Friday night. It was my first one. I was going up to Arbroath. Uh, I think, as I said to you earlier, we, they were up against Partick Thistle. Um, and I'd never been as far north as as our growth. I was told it was windy, but it was actually an absolutely lovely day. I got the bus up there with Al Lamb and Billy Dodds. We had a really nice chat on the way. Um, but Billy, by the way, is just the most lovely man. Um, Great player as well. Really, yeah, yeah, he was, but he made me feel really welcome yeah. on that bus as well because I didn't know many of the people on it. And yeah, so we're going to our growth. Really nice day, beautiful day in the uh, sunshine and by the sea. And I'm there with my ISDN kit, which we used to broadcast off. And I'm thinking, where should I set up here? So I ask where the ISDN kit is, where the ISDN, um, what's it called? Where the where, basically where the point is that you can connect and broadcast and reach the studio. And they didn't actually have one, nor did they have any plugs free for me to plug it in. So they <laughs> well, the, Gayfield is an old-fashioned grind. I could have really it done that. It certainly is. It was it was a rude awakening into the life of broadcasting at Scottish football games. Although my first ever game, which I did live, was at Hampton Park, which I think set the bar unrealistically high. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the press officer said, "Well, there's a plug in the ball ball changing room." So I thought, okay, so there was a plug, but it was used for the freezer. So I had to get permission to unplug the freezer and plug my ISDN kit in, which only had a short lead and would not stretch all the way to the door. So it was, I was stretched across this room, wire going the full way across, and then the person in charge of the ball boys comes in and goes, you can't broadcast it here. You can't have all these wires, health and safety issues. So I'm thinking, what am I meant to do here? Um, Thankfully, we came to an arrangement where I'd pack up my stuff and make sure that I was on air before the ball boys came in, and then they'd come in, I'd get out. Um, but yeah, I had to stand by the door, and whenever there was a goal, I had to run back to my ISDN kit, dial in, shout goal, report on it, and then you know go back and stand outside. But yeah, it was a, a bit of a rude awakening in certain I'd have thought, I'd have thought you might have to get an, an adapter out of Argos or something like one of these uh, things. Well, yeah, Grant, I probably should have, but we'll play Marlboro. We'll play Marlboro. Yeah, I've been to Gayfield. I've actually sat in the Gayfield dugout. It's a, it's a really old-fashioned grind, and you know, I've, one of my best friends, who's been a previous guest of this podcast, Gavin Craw, massive Arbroath fan, and a really great club. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I really liked it. And I, I'd also um, interviewed Dick Campbell a few months earlier as well with uh, a guy called Stefan Biankowski, um, who works for BBC Sports Scotland. Yeah. He was just lovely, but um, really funny character. And yeah, it was, a, it was a good experience. And unfortunately, I've not been to too many grounds since because of, as I say, staffing um, restrictions and also the current lockdown. But hoping, hoping that we can get to, to some soon. You mentioned Billy Dodds and Al Lamont. I mean, what other people have you worked with in the BBC that have made you feel very welcome? I mean, Al's brilliant as well, but you mentioned Billy Dodds. I mean, what a great player and fantastic pundit as well. Yeah, yeah, Billy's brilliant. Stephen Thompson as well. Um, it's been absolutely lovely to oh, me. Tom's someone else, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, Tom's hilarious. Um, really nice guy. Every, to be fair, everyone's made me feel welcome in the department. It's a really great department that we've got. Um, and Jonathan Sutherland is such a lovely guy. Um, I mean, he's pretty much the Scottish equivalent of Gary Lineker in terms of what yeah. he presents. Yeah. Um, but he, he, he's, there's obviously not, not that sort of star factor around him. He's just a lovely guy. I sit next to him quite a lot. Um, Tom English I've worked with briefly. 
just um, absolutely mesmerised by his writing. I know he comes in for a lot of stick, but... I think he's know, a very good writer, yeah. Yeah, I if I can write half as well as him, by the time I leave Scotland, I think I'll have, I've learned a lot. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a great department. It's one that makes me feel very welcome, and I'm not in a rush to leave at any time Absolutely. soon. Absolutely. I, I feel really sorry for Jonathan Sutherland every Sunday, because he's got to put up with both Michael Stewart and Stephen Thompson on sports. He, he loves fantastic. it. He loves it. He does. He does. <laughs> he does. It's fantastic. And he leads so well, doesn't he? And, you know, he comes obviously from up this way, up Aberdeen way originally, and, you know, the connections with a lot of guys like Rob McLean and Liam McLeod and that. The northeast of Scotland and the north seem to really be doing quite well in the PEC. <laughs> yeah, Liam's a fantastic commentator as well. He's absolutely brilliant. It's something that I'm looking to get into. I'm hoping that you might hear me on Sports Scene next season on the Highlight Show. So, Hope so. I'm going to get a few uh, pointers from Liam because he yeah. is so brilliant at his job. Just the how quickly he's able to describe action and also the excitement in his voice yeah. you know and he obviously loves it well he's kind of taken over the mantle from Rob hasn't he and Paul Mitchell previously who who, yeah. who did very very well and Rob's one of my sporting heroes and one of my own idols growing up following football and, and Paul's been fantastic over a range of different sports so you know you're, you're leading off the right guys if you're going down that route so yeah, best yeah. Of luck to you. I hope so yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, let's go back to the Manchester City story because I, I kind of said at the beginning I wanted to ask you your best Man City eleven. Um, so without further ado, give me your best City eleven. Well, as I said, I think I'm going to have to go for some of the most recent players, really. Um, you put me on the spot, to be fair. Let's think four three three formation. Ederson in goal because he's just fantastic. Go Pablo Zabaleta at right back. Um, he, he was great Vincent Company, Imeric Laporte left back's tricky because we've not really had any good ones but I think Gail Clichy was, was superb for, for a time you've got as I say I've got to remind the listeners I'm only 24 so there will be players like Colin Bell and Francis Lee and Mike Sullivan be that I miss out absolutely but unfortunately I've just not watched them play much so yeah. I'll have to go for the ones that I've seen up close and personal so yeah I'll go Gail Clichy left back Defensive midfielder will stick. Ooh, am I going to leave Fernandinho out? Yeah, I will. Go uh, Yaya Torre, holding midfielder. Great shape. Tudor, um, brilliant player. Has yeah, to go in. Kevin, Kevin De Bruyne, who I think we'll look at. By the time he retires, if he gets a Champions League, maybe a World Cup, I think in terms of ability, he's not far off Zidane, I think, honestly. I think De Bruyne is the best player in the Premier League right now, outside of Liverpool. But I think just his quality of passing, you know, he is the City equivalent of what Paul Scholes was at Manchester United, I would say. Maybe yeah, even better yeah, no, than that. Yeah, yeah, I think he's better, to be honest. I think he's absolutely brilliant. He can do it all. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, we'll go to De Bruyne there. David Silva, left central midfielder. Maybe I won't go four three three because I'm having Tevez and Aguero up top. Interesting. So I'll, I'll need another midfielder. For Why somewhere. Tevez and not Jekyll? Interested in that one. Uh, it's a good question. I, I think Tevez is easier on the eye in terms of footballing ability. Does he played for uh, United as well, and you know I I, I love Tevez at, at Manchester United, but he divided opinion. But he, he scored some big goals for City. Yeah, he, he was brilliant for us. I think at one time he was our top scorer um, at the club um, yeah. in the Premier League. So he was really good for us. It's a time that gets overlooked a little bit because of the controversy that followed when he went and played golf in Argentina. <laughs> but um, from from when he signed to when, when Aguero came in, really, those two years he was phenomenal. Some goals that he scored against Wolves and Stoke were 
Yes. Just outrageous, really. Um, so I think in terms of natural ability, you've got to have Tevez in there. Yeah. And Aguero, unfortunately, we're deprived of that partnership because of that golfing trip. Um, and yeah, maybe I'll go George King Cladsey as the attacking midfielder to have a bit of nostalgia yeah, in there. Show. Maybe King Cladsey was a brilliant player. Squeeze, squeeze him in there. Well, you're going to put Ray Fultz instead of King Cladsey. Interesting. Yeah. One thing yeah. that was I mean, really. I think, if I'm being honest, I should probably just have Bernardo Silver in there yeah. because he's better than well, those players. I'm really surprised that Raheem Sterling isn't in this team. Controversial opinion I've got, but I actually saw recently. I think it's the index football for football observatory where they, they do a some sort of algorithm which calculates the players' transfer fee, mm. what they're actually worth. Um, first of all, let me say I think Sterling is a very good player. I think he's really good. He was listed as being worth 191 million pounds by that um, that website. If someone offered me half of that. I'd snap their arm off. <laughs> yeah. I think he's done absolutely brilliantly. He's come on leaps and bounds, but I think he's still quite a limited player in certain situations. Mm. I think his mentality can often let him down. He's, he's never scored against Man United, which was the team that he supported as a boy. 16 times, I think, 16 games maybe, 17 games that's been. Never scored against Liverpool and always goes into his shell against them. Uh, actually, no, to be fair, he scored in the Community Shield against them, but... <laughs> There are times, and when he goes through on goal, he just doesn't look like he's going to score. I, I believe there are better options out there um, for the fee you could get for him. Yeah. He's brilliant. I, I've done him a bit of a disservice there, but yeah. I, I just don't rate him as highly as others. And, man- and manager, is it Pep? Oh. I, if, if I want them to play as well as possible, it is. Um, if you're asking me the manager that I love more, it would be Mancini. Right. Interesting. So I, I'll, go, I'll go with Guardiola. I'll go with Guardiola. Ooh, interesting. I'll put you on the spot, yeah. to be fair. I didn't give you the time to, to think about your <laughs> 11. I've just put you on the spot. But I'll I'll post that on social media when it comes out. That'll be Jordan's Man City 11. And if anybody who's listening wants to compete, Jordan, for their best 11, please head to the Campbell's Football's Instagram or Twitter handles to uh, to have a debate and see what you think. Jordan, we're coming to the end of the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat, just learning about your own career in Scotland so far and obviously your time supporting Manchester City. Um, what does the future hold? Because you know you're younger than me and 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 really go in places. Yeah. Um, likewise, by the way, thank you very much for having me on. Um, it's been great to discuss. I think the future, hopefully, let's let's presume it's a dangerous presumption that things start to go back to normal. And I would hope that next season I'll be commentating on Scottish Premiership matches on Sports Scene highlights, maybe Sports Scene results, depending on on what happens. I've done a couple of those already, but a more regular slot doing that. Um, and hopefully on TV a little bit more. I do a lot of radio stuff, bulletins on Radio Scotland, so I presume that'll continue. But long term, I think my future lies down in England, in Manchester, my home, where the main BBC Sport offices are based. And it's my all-time dream to be a commentator. And I think if I, if I, in the next 10 years maybe, manage to commentate on a game on Match of the Day, then I think I'll have, I'll have done well. I yeah. think that's my... My dream. And following your footsteps of the magnificent Martin Tyler, who I have to yeah. say is is one of the best, and I, I, in my view, it is an absolute legend. John, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on. Um, I wish you all the best for your future. Um, thanks very much for taking the time to come on Campbell's Footballs. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Well, listener, that brings us to the end of yet another episode of Campbell's Footballs. I hope this podcast was just what the doctor ordered. 
If you want to listen to previous shows or look out for future shows, follow Campbell's Footballs on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to other podcasts. You can also follow the show on Facebook at Campbell's Footballs. Search for me, StatoG91 on Instagram or other social media channels. But until then, until next time, I hope you enjoyed the crack and enjoy Campbell's Footballs. What a dangerous night.